Welcome to the Marist Review. I'm Marist Prizman, and I've been looking forward to this one for quite a while now. Elizabeth Acevedo is the New York Times bestselling author of The Poet X, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature and a whole bunch of other prizes. She's also the author of With the Fire on High and Clapham Land. She's a National Poetry Slam champion and resides in Washington, D.C. with her love. Her debut novel for an adult audience is called Family Lore. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. So delighted to be here with you, Maris. I'm so delighted. I love that family lore is this big intergenerational story, but the narrator is an anthropologist. And so that allows her and you to, to break into various narratives whenever she chooses with yeah. some, some, some needed facts. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, always been intrigued by novels that are disrupted. And I I like having windows into the text that exist outside of the world of of time, of, of the text, right? I'm thinking here, if you've read the Poet X, you've seen that there were writing assignments that would come in. There would be text messages, just these ways in that would kind of leave interiority, right? Um, and I did it with The Fire on High as well, but I'm thinking here of Oscar Wilde, where we would have footnotes, more recently, Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Ajay Brenya, Nana, Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, where he has footnotes as well. I didn't want to do footnotes. I had abstracts, right, that would kind of come yes. in after every other chapter, but it didn't work. I, I just, it didn't feel good. It didn't fit. It felt too unclear what, what the narrator's anthropological research was. And so I kind of began writing these asides. All of the abstract turned into these little moments of literally disrupting the paragraph to just give the narrator his kind of take. And then she would like quietly exit and the story would continue. And I love that because this is a book about collecting oral history and oral storytelling. And I don't know about you, but I can't listen to a story without at some point being like, Oh my God, that reminds me of, or, you know, like you disrupt, you, you push, you, you're a part of how the story gets told. And once I realized that was the rhythm that the the narrator was integral to the kinds of stories being told and the questions being answered, it, it, it started making sense why she had her own two cents kind of always sprinkled throughout. Yeah. She's a, she's an expert in so many areas with her, her family. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the field of anthropology, which you really get into, even starting with, I was Googling a lot while I read this book. I don't speak Spanish well, so <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah. but Ona is the name of the, the narrator, mm-hmm. but that's, that's short for something. And I wanted to, to <laughs> ask you about her, her namesake who, who fought Christopher Columbus, who she very yeah. clearly, both of them, hate very much, which, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're the first person to kind of um, bring that up. And it, it's like, I think, dropped exactly once in a scene with like an old lover where you hear her full name and then otherwise, you know, you you get her shortened name. But so Anacaona was an indigenous cacique or leader. Uh, there were matriarchal leaders through our, throughout the Taino history and, and Taino is the name for the indigenous people of the Northern Caribbean, so the Greater Antilles. And, and Aracauna tried to kind of work with the Spanish, try to work with the the commanders that 
Columbus had left while also on the low leading rebellions. Um, but but she was murdered kind of in a horrific manner. They, they set her on fire. Um, and her nephew ended up, you know, attempting to redeem her. He was the the one of the last of her line. Um, but she was really like the last cacique that took a stand against the Spanish and was was fierce, right? Was fierce and was loved and, and was really trying to do what was right by her people when she realized like, oh shit, like these these white folks are are kind of evil. They were coming and, in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're not leaving. Like I thought they they're were gonna visit and keep it going. They're not leaving. Yeah. And and what a great namesake for a narrator who is very much talking about the kinds of of magic that that members of her family have. I, it feels like so she's collecting stories of her mother and her mother's three sisters, and I'm I'm fascinated by the, there's a point when Anya says it's not like white people magic in movies. Uh, their, their, their magic is not orderly. It doesn't come out at the most convenient times. How did you set that up? How, how does, how does the magic work or not work? Yeah. I mean, I think traditional world building, the system of rules of how the magic is developed that, you know, Harry Potter gets his letter when he's 11, right? Like there, yeah. there's this particular rule setting, which allows people to understand it. But I, but, but that's the world of fantasy, I think when we're talking about communities that live in magic every day and they're either religious aspects or their cultural aspects is in relationship with magic, it, there's a fluidity there that I think doesn't really align with the way that magic is often written about. It's it's not fantasy. It is the everyday, right? It mm -hmm. is the supernatural is in and out. It is your life is is permeated by kind of the supernatural. And so I wanted it to feel that way. Like it's not um, something that is easy to describe. Each woman gets her her quirk or her talent or her her magical whatever at a different <laughs> age or not at all. It's in the body. It's also in, in the cerebral, right? Like someone can tell when you're lying, but that's in the gut, but someone can dream something, but also you can inherit a taste for limes. Like it, it, I didn't want it to be a single system of magic there's no like telekinesis there's no yeah. teleportation you know in the right. way that we think of superpowers but there is just like a little bit of the uncanny in in all of them and it's not a thing that can be easily held right and I think that it's one of the reasons why Ona had never really looked inward to consider her family as a a subject because it it, it was just so normal it was so right. normal for her and none of them use it for their career. None of them are making money off of it. Like it's just, it's just who they are. It's just who they are. And and uh, of course, Ona's little magical quirk is is a biggie. <laughs> <laughs> and I I really enjoyed hearing about it, and and also hearing all of the synonyms for for. <laughs> You know, it's for, really hard to find a lot of words for your vagina. I thought that would like be a long list. I'm like, we used that twice already. <laughs> Tell me yeah. about that that specific uh, magical aspect. Yeah. I didn't know if this was actually going to stick. Um, I was. I talked to my best friend every single day. She lives in New York, and we've been best friends since we were five. And I left for college to DC at 18, and we still talk daily right very different walks of life very different kinds of women but 
we find each other hilarious. And one day I'm just talking to her and she's like, yeah, I got everybody in my job got their period because, you know, I have an alpha vagina. And just the way she said it was just like, no, like there was no irony. There was, it was just like, yeah, you understood. Yeah. That's just, you know, that's, that's who I am. And like, I don't know, you know, I think that's a myth. I don't know that menstruation actually works that way, but (laughs) I love the idea of, of claiming, claiming an alpha vagina, claiming, a vagina as just this uber powerful thing that can maybe affect the people around you. I feel like, you know, I didn't even know the name for vagina until I was way too old to to know its official name. I think I wasn't, my mom didn't really talk to me about it, didn't really talk about my period. There was so much I discovered on my own that I was moved by a character that fully reclaimed pleasure and and her body and her vagina as like this this site that I don't know was unfuckwittable. Like I just, <laughs> yeah, I, and, and I just kind of moved with that. And then when her story kind of started coming in, coming out for me and like realizing like maybe her womb had, she had a different relationship with her womb and what does it mean for, for all of those interconnected organs to be one sites of, of trauma and harm, but also of, of joy and, and pleasure. And, and then it became a more nuanced story of, what what an alpha vagina could be but it but it was kind of just like let's talk about this thing that especially in Dominican culture we 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 hint at and it's in the music and sexuality is in the music but mm-hmm. but we're also very proper about it so I don't know I loved that that was her power <laughs> I, was I, her I did too one of one of my favorite things about the book which you don't always see I mean so a lot of it is is the amp recollecting and talking about their past but one of the things that we get to see is that all of their relationships with each other are different and one sister's relationship with their mother Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. be really fraught and terrible and one can almost be nurturing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's that's such a tough pill to swallow that the same people can can show Mm -hmm. different faces to to the people that you know and love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I was intrigued by kind of trying to figure out how do people in big families who have very different relationships with each other kind of make sense of the experience that they have or don't have, right, in these interconnected groups. And for sure, Mama Silvia, who is the the elders, ladies, mother, and Ona and Yari's grandmother, kind of had a very different relationship with each of her daughters and with her son and then with her granddaughter. And 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 there's there was harm, right? And there was neglect and and there was love. And I think so often when we are harmed by people, uh we we want to know that the people around us also felt that that we're like we yes. are in in unity. And then when they're like that's that's just not my experience of that person, it, it can be a hard thing to to navigate, right? Because just because it's not your experience doesn't mean it didn't happen, but also what does it mean that this person could do this to me and not to someone else? And so those questions, I felt like created a real engine for how the characters dealt with each other. Even the sisters, right? The sisters have, they break down into different groupings and they see each other different and they they hold and are tender towards each other in different ways. And, and so it's this constant tension of, um, not even favoritism, but of um, how 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 do you love me? What is love here? What does it look like? Who do you love more? 
how do I love you back if you know and and for for readers who really um, go back to the interviews you'll see that the majority of owners questions to her family you never see the questions on the page but the answers are all about love right and so we can pause it. Ona is asking. <laughs> Ona is trying to figure out that same question that I was kind of trying to figure out. How how do we learn love? How do we practice love? I, I do love another narrative quirk about family lore <laughs> is that we do get we get some interview transcripts and then at some kind of some point then the narrative takes over. And yeah. and I hadn't I I that was really fun to watch and fun to yeah. move move between. Tell me about how you structured the story, both in terms of when you veer back into the past, how far, what do you cover when, how much to reveal at one point. But also, it's so interesting because it's how much does Ona know versus how much does the reader know versus you know, the, the, the other characters and, and when revelations are going to hit. Right. So the story kind of has two conceits at play, right? The, the first conceit that holds the entire thing is um, one of the characters, Floored, has decided to throw herself a living wake and you are dropped into the story the three days before the wake, uh, including the day of. Right. And so readers will notice you're kind of introduced to each character individually. Then you see each character in groupings. And then once we see them all together, um, we are we are in the present. We are in the wake, which is the thing that that has um, been the catalyst for for all the recollections. Um, the second conceit is that our narrator, for some reason, is collecting these stories. Right. So there's kind of a project within the project. Sorry, if you haven't read it, that might feel like a spoiler, but it's also not something you you learn it pretty quickly, page 70 or something. So these two, two things are moving. I was really moved by how memory can work and how, how when we are trying to say goodbye to someone or we're trying to practice letting go of someone, it it is not the, the present we are letting go, right? It's, it's the memories we have of them, the memories we have of ourselves. Whenever we think of someone dying. We we think of our own our own choices and what has brought us here. And have I lived a fulfilling life? Have I lived a satisfying life? Have I lived well? Like can I die well? And so those kinds of questions, I imagine, as people are watching a sister prepare for a wake that they don't know what the what what ultimately will come of it, were were the questions I I imagine they'd be asking in preparation. Where were the points in my life where something could have gone different? And so the memories come up often as um, almost points of rupture, a wedding night, you know, a first period saying goodbye to a love who is being incarcerated and and having to process that through your gut. Right. And so it is this, these moments of this was a turning point that I can highlight. And I imagine that if someone is asking you a question like when was you know, when was the time that you knew your future could have been different? These were the points that would have come up, right? And so the, the memories do take up a lot of time. For folks who only want forward movement, this book might be a little frustrating on your spirit. But I think that no. I'm not interested in kind of the the modes of storytelling that only move forward. And, and for this book, I don't think it would have worked, right? I wanted to write in 
a storytelling tradition, as I've mentioned, but also in a tradition that felt like really Dominican, right? And and when we talk, we're a little circular. We are a, a little bit um, the aside within the aside within the aside to, to get to the point. Um, but but it's also like our music. You know, if, if you dance bachata, if you know bachata, bachata, you take three steps forwards and three steps back. And you can cross an entire ballroom doing that. But in order to move forward, you have to return, right? And so this book is constantly tugging at forward, but back, but forward, but back. And you're going to move in the present day, but but you can't abandon the memory until it, it's kind of been, you know, spoken, right? And so Ona does know a lot of it, um, but the reader also knows things that the characters don't know because they talk about each other, right? They talk shit. Right. <laughs> it's like, they, there's they this, do. yeah. And that to me was was such a a cool way to deal with rev like with what they reveal, and how a, one sister may not know how someone else attempted to protect her may never know, right? Because that that wasn't it wasn't for her to, for her to tell, but now we have we know, and we imagine Ona knows, and so it's like what what are all the secrets that family members have, and how does silence work within a family? Absolutely. That was a and long answer, Maris. My bad. No, no, <laughs> I, I I really appreciate it because then there are even choices like where I'm making assumptions about Ona, like, oh, she had these two other aunts uh, right in front of her. And therefore, we don't really hear about Camila until like halfway through the book, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's just, I assume. Tell me if I'm wrong, that that's just like, that's how Ona got to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what your family is like, but my mom is one of 15 and um, she's one of nine sisters and the young ones, like they're a crew and the older ones, they're a crew. And like, depending on whose kid you are, that they're, that's your crew. Right. And so you might want to hang out with the younger ones, but, but you know, they, they, they break down how they break down and you're just around the people who your, your mom is around. That's who, you know, and so there is a, a question of proximity and how even our storyteller who should know better also is neglectful <laughs> in some instances <laughs> in regards to doesn't know how to bring some folks in. And, and she is also, and I, I love this. I love this as her interest and as your interest not very interested in in the men in the family no at all <laughs> at all no <laughs> and and even just um we learn that pastora is the one who seems to have the most traditionally loving marriage mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. but of course we never see him <laughs> yeah no <laughs> the men they don't exist on the page, you know, I, I think, uh, or very rarely. Jeremiah comes in mm -hmm. probably more than most. And, and that's because of, you know, who our, who our storyteller is. We get insights there. But I just, I wanted to focus on the women. And I think particularly in Dominican history and, and storytelling, it's so often it's oriented around the men and the men's story. And, and I wanted to think through what would it mean to bring to the forefront primarily the women and, and what would it feel like in a book to have it occupied in this way? And is it uncomfortable to to know there's a brother, but we don't know him? And what does that discomfort do? And what does that mean? And 
and I, I don't know. I think I've, I've felt it on the other side and I've seen it on the other side. And I kind of wanted to play with how does gender present and perform in a book like this? Yeah. yeah. And it, it, there was there was a moment and this I hope this isn't a spoiler. Um, I, I won't say too much about the actual wake, but did you know that the brother is physically there? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that happen when you when happens when you grow up in a culture of like there's women's business and there men, there's men's business is that men don't realize how much they're not a part of certain things because they relegated it to the world of women. And so then if you're writing about the world of women, it's like, no, you wouldn't know this because you're not a part of those conversations. You didn't go talk to mama. You didn't show up in that way. And so the story doesn't include you and you don't even know that because you removed yourself so often because you didn't think that was where you should be. Now, now you're not there. Now you're not kind of chronicled in the way that we tell these tales. And so it is, I think, a, a disservice, but it, but it is a reflection of how power is at play right he's also faultless no one is like you should have stepped right. in when all right. this stuff was happening right like in the same way that that their father was yeah. faultless even though you were a part of it right like they are they are removed but but you kind of see the ways that that plays against them yeah yeah and so let's let's talk a little bit about each of the amps because okay. um, <laughs> one of the things so matilda is the oldest sister mm -hmm. and i love the idea that her younger sisters might have more of a spiritual kind or not spiritual more of a, a practical kind kinds of skills but mm -hmm. her 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 power is yeah. dancing <laughs> Yeah, and and you do you describe it in in especially in in two scenes so so delightfully that you can actually see that is that it is actually a power. Yeah, yeah. you know, Matilda, I knew from the beginning wasn't going to have magic, right? We, we kind of see her as the long suffering in all capacities, um, also the softest, also the quietest, um, and yet she is the only one that is not in any capacity defined by by magic um and the only one that kind of has to pursue what it means to um make it yourself right no oh. one gave it to me it didn't it didn't just blossom one day i i worked and i found it within myself what what i'm capable of doing and i think at 73 to be like i i have this thing that no one can take from me that i forged um I knew from jump, like there's a character that's going to have to uh, reconsider what magic is in in her own way. And and I think Matilda in particular felt like the character that needed that. Um, yeah, Absolutely. And she is just the detail I keep coming back to is she's the assistant manager in Yadi's shop. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that, so we, we hear a lot about Yadi's um food. Yes. Vegan. Yes. And <laughs> it it does it implies a level of curiosity yeah. that that we might not expect from from the other sisters. Yeah. I think Matilde to me is is really tender and doesn't always know where to put that. 
And in Yari, she kind of sees someone that could really use that tenderness. And so the curiosity initially comes from like, how do we feed her if she doesn't eat any of the things we would traditionally give? And everyone else is like, well, she, you know, she'll either eat or she'll starve or, right. or we'll make we'll make her eggs. That's vegan. It's like, no, that's not. right. <laughs> and so she's the one that's like, oh, I'm I'm going to pay attention. Right. And it just starts from trying to pay attention. And then I think Yari sees in her like, oh, there's there's this thing you're doing that we're doing. Right. And and I loved or I, I wanted to work towards how the relationships weren't just sister to sister and then cousin to cousin. It is aunt to niece. It is like it it crosses a lot of, of ways. And that crossover, I thought, did did something really interesting to the story because they they give each other a stage to be that that you know a lot of the other characters don't give those two. Absolutely. And then and then even like the idea of Yadi going to visit her grandmother gives us this whole other window into both of their world right Uh, and and like what yadi's shit looks like (laughs) there's a lot of descriptions of shit yeah no i i yeah the grandmother is such a particular character and i think her body shows a lot of the kind of woman she the kind of mother maybe she could have been or would have been um, if things had been different, if time had been different, if space and the resources she had access to had been different. Absolutely. And I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to talk right. about Pastora a little bit because yeah. there's a lot to to, <laughs> to ponder. The idea that you can tell or someone can tell when someone is lying is mm-hmm. like, one of those things that, you know, good con men and (laughs) if I'm looking away from you at a moment, you're supposed to know that that's a tell. Right, right, right. But but Pastora has a kind of different way of approaching it. Yeah, it's it's felt entirely in her body. Like she just, this is one of the, the, the things of magic where it's not, it's described as a clang. She could kind of hear and she can feel like that rings true. You know, the phrase rings true for her as a very real kind of connotation of I, I like that's a lie. That's true. That's a lie. That's true. It, you know, and it, it's it's clear that she's the bitterest of the sisters, also the most controlling because she's just like everyone is lying. Everyone is like, you know, a mess. And I like I have to protect my own. Right. And it's her own not confronting when she's been left unprotected, but it's like this need to keep everyone safe. So she's she's the one in everyone's business and just like uh, just running around with with all her unmitigated anxiety. But but I have to imagine that if you talk to a lot of people and everyone is lying, you know, you you'd also <laughs> be anxious. <laughs> have you seen the show Poker Face? Oh yes, yeah. Oh yeah. So. I mean, I had been turned in the book by the time we watched it, but I remember being like, I thought I I should have made her a gambler. (laughs) She should have definitely been a card show. (laughs) Amazing. Well, this has been so wonderful. Family Lore is out now. Elizabeth, before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us? 
Yes. If you are someone who likes family sagas, but maybe told in a compressed fashion, Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson was one that I really looked at. And she similarly is someone who is playing with time and the way we ease in and out of, of time and memory. And that book is, is wonderful. Red at the Bone, Jacqueline Woodson. I Can't Say Enough by about the secret lives of church ladies by Disha Filia. I just think, I mean, these books came out a couple years ago, but I'm thinking of the books that informed my book, right? And so mm-hmm. um, that's a book of like, what does it mean to be prim and proper, but also like just have have your body and your pleasure and, and, and naming that, right? And it's a short story collection and it's fucking fantastic. And I guess if you're just thinking of parenting and maybe you just want some feel-good poems, <laughs> Above Ground by my friend Clint Smith is like a really good palate cleanser. If you're like, wow, families are really tough and complicated, but also like it's really cute to watch someone take their first steps, right? <laughs> Once you've read all the other books and you're like, I need something that just a little, a little dessert, <laughs> Above Ground is a, a beautiful collection. That's wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.